What? We matched pretty well today, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> I said we called each other. <laughs> <laughs> my eyes are burning. You're going to get Good morning, everybody. We're going to begin here. Um, I don't have any announcements. Does anybody have any announcements? <laughs> or, yeah, Claire, go ahead. Okay. New booklets for Days of Praise are out there, too. Okay. Uh, we're still sending things directly to Starla uh, for the time being, but that might come to end soon. Um, so for today, if you brought your tithe, she's here, she's in the lobby, but we'll collect it here in the plates and then we'll give it to her so that uh, she can take care of that. We're slowly getting things, quote unquote, back to normal and we'll see how things go there. Any other announcements? I'm sorry? We are running a deficit. Uh, and that would probably be expected with all the, the things that happened over the months. So if you've been holding on to your tithe, we could sure use it, <laughs> put in the plate. Um, any other announcements uh, before we begin our service this morning? Good to see you all. Got to hear some people pulling in right now. That's good. Uh, our scripture for meditation is Genesis 2, 19 through 25. Again, Genesis 2, 19 through 25. And I'm not sure what page that is in the Pew Bible because there's not one up here. Anyone have that? They can cut off what that is. In the Pew Bible. Page four. Yeah, it's not very far in. <laughs> Page four in the Pew Bible. Again, Genesis 2, 19 through 25.
If you could stand if you're able, we'll open our service in prayer. George, will you open us, open us in service with prayer this morning? Thank you. Main standing, our first hymn is God of Our Fathers. It's uh, number 573 in the hymnal. <clears throat> 573. Thank you. 
Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. It is 1823 in the Pew Bible. Again, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. I know you just sat down, but you can stand for the reading if you'd like to. We're going to sing as soon as the scripture is over as well, so it's up to you. Again, Ephesians 5. 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Take your Trinity Trinity hymnal this time, excuse me, and turn to number 670, 670 in the red hymnal. Oh, 
Good morning. Our scripture text this morning is found in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're doing this kind of mini-series on the subject of a living faith, which means you have to live it out. We dealt firstly with the fact that saving faith is not. It's helpful to define things by saying what things are not as well as what things are. And that gives us a better picture. Faith that believes in God does not save. The premise of our faith, if genuine, it's going to change us. Morally, It's not just an intellectual ascent. We will become more like Christ and less like the evil one. You know, the demons believe in God. They do. And yet they remain morally wicked and opposed to God. They're not saved, though they believe in God. So there's a faith. What I'm saying is there is a, a faith that does not result in salvation. I hear it all the time. If you try to witness people, they say, well, I believe in God. And they think that that means that they're saved and they're heading for heaven. If you point out to them that the demons believe in God too, but they're still demons. They haven't changed one bit morally. They're still hmm, fist in God's face, opposed to God. We learn, secondly, that religious faith does not save. Think about that. Religious faith does not save. There are many religions in the world, each with opposing scenarios on how to be saved from from the wrath to come, and yet they deny the clear teaching of God's word, the Bible. Jesus, guess what, even denied that the Jewish faith, of which he was a part, would save. This whole conflict with the Pharisees is over this very issue. They were trusting not in God and his salvation, but in their religious acuity. That was the third point, that faith in orthodox doctrine does not save. Now, being biblical, biblically correct, we want to be biblically correct. That's commendable. But it's not what saves Because in many, as with the Pharisees I just referred to of Jesus' day, the correct doctrine doesn't change the person who believes it. It didn't change their heart. They were just happy that, um, we could put it this way, they were happy that they were right. And by right, I mean right theologically. So there is a faith out there that does not save. And then we turn our attention to the faith that does save. What's the faith that saves? Well, it's the faith that repents of sin. Not saying you're sorry, though sorrow accompanies true repentance. Not mere confession of guilt. Not turning away from uh, bad habits and so forth. But turning from sin unto Christ that he might become our life. 
That's the faith that saves. You pointed out, secondly, that faith in Christ alone is the faith that saves. Not believe in Christ, but plus something you add to him by way of confession or contrition or sorrow or penance or attendance to religious duties or prayer or financial gifts to the church. It isn't Christ plus. It's Christ alone that saves. And if we don't have that down, I'm wondering what we're putting our faith in. I'm wondering what we're trusting. Well, in today's lesson, it brings us to the beginning of the end of this short series on faith, in which I wish to deal with some very practical exhortations to us as the people of God who claim spiritual life by faith in Jesus Christ. We have Paul's testimonial, his own testimonial statement. It's found in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. Well, that's a good question. How does a believer who has died to his or her old self sinful patterns, how does he now live his or her life by faith in the Son of God? That's always the question. We have learned that there must be change. There must be change. James has taught us that without appropriate godly behavior, our faith is bogus. There's a whole book in the Bible about that. It's called the book of James. We're no better off than the demons, says James, who believe in God but remain evil spirits in practice. So what I hope to do as we begin to close this series is to take a look at various aspects of life and living to see what God says about these things and then to ask you and to ask myself as well, who claim to be the people of faith in God, how do we measure up are we measuring up and in today's message i want to deal with faith and the subject of marriage it's a good thing to talk about on father's day firstly i want to talk about the origin of marriage so what why would you talk about the origin of marriage because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the origin of marriage. Sociologists will tell you, and I've heard them say it, they've said it to me, that marriage between one man and one woman grew out of a pluralistic society in which men cohabiting with multiple women began to see the benefit of being committed to one woman sexually and socially. And so society moved from a polygamist view of marriage to a monolistic, monotheistic view of marriage. And when that happened, society began to approve one man with one woman. And so marriage, as we know it, was invented. Sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? Appears to be logical. Seems to follow sequentially as to 
what we would expect to occur as a man began to wrestle with the complexity of multiple women as partners, perhaps all living under one roof, oh boy. Complicated life, let's make it more simple. Personal intimacy is better over less intimacy due to multiple partners with whom loyalty and love was divided. Sounds very, very reasonable. So say the sociologists. Well, what does the scripture say? It says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads to death. Proverbs 14, verse 12. And again, God says of himself, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 8. We learn of man's thoughts on marriage and the story of our first parents. And what we learn is that monogamy was the first order of marriage, not an afterthought and not the result of sociological process. Let me read it for you. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from that rib. He had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. By the way, that's what the word woman means. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Genesis 2, verse 18 and following. Now what's interesting is that Jesus himself referred to this account. Jesus himself referred to this account in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees questioned him on divorce. Haven't you read, he told the Pharisees, That at the beginning the creator made them male and female and he said for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife singular and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one therefore here's the conclusion therefore what God has joined together let man not separate Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? Send her away. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you. Oh, different word. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way. From the beginning, Matthew 19, verse 4 and following. So in this text, our Lord here is confirming the Genesis account as the time when God initiated the sexes, male and female, and ordained how they were to live, a man leaving his abode where he once lived with his parents and being united with his wife, singular, and those two, not three, not four, those two becoming one flesh. That's our Lord sanctioning the Genesis account. 
taking us back centuries to the beginning in the beginning in the beginning. Now this brings up a number of implications concerning biblical teaching on marriage. Let me suggest some. Number one, man began monogamous, not a poly, polygamous, polygamous. One man, one woman, the woman originating from Adam's own body, so there's a direct connect there. It is sin that led to polygamy. Sin led to polygamy. So the first implication is, according to God's word, we begin monogamously. Secondly, there was no other woman and no other men, which means God created Eve as Adam's sole partner. No evolutionary concept of the spontaneous emergence of the sexes, which is evolution talking. Thirdly, this was not a live-in situation, for God named Eve as wife to Adam. God himself sanctified marriage and made it official and made it holy. Fourthly, in the sexual union is what made in an Adam and Eve one flesh that is whole, not separate entities, male and female, one complete person. which tells us that marriage is the normal order, the normal plan of God for his people. Number five, sexual union was confined and sanctified within marriage and designed for procreation as well as pleasure. Let me read it for you. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1 verse 28. And we read, Adam lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Genesis 4 verse 1. And Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There's God's plan. Which brings into question the implications of sociologists and what they teach on marriage. I'm talking about the secular world. think I have a bunch of points on this. Yeah. Sociologists teach that since marriage is the invention of civilized men within society, then society can define marriage as it sees fit. The whole debate today in our country over legitimatizing gay marriage is the outgrowth of men defying God's original order. The idea that God would sanction in marriage a sexual union, he elsewhere condemns, and you can read the condemnation, Genesis 18.20, Genesis 19.23 and following, 
and that he calls that kind of homosexual perversion, Romans 1.27, is ludicrous to think that he is blessing homosexuality as well as monogamy. If society gets to approve or disapprove the construct of marriage, who's to say that having multiple wives is a bad idea? By the way, virtually all of the Arab world, though not all within that world, see nothing wrong with having multiple wives. And they do. The Mormon church in our own country teaches and practices polygamy, citing Old Testament examples as biblical support. There's a movement now in our country to approve for all what the Mormons practice in secret. Have as many wives as you want. Now, marriage if, marriage if, the invention of men, it becomes optional. Two people can commit to live in situations without the formal declaration and legal contract of marriage. If it's the invention of men, think about this. God's explanation as to why he no longer accepted Israel's offerings was this. Let me read it for you. You ask why, Malachi 2.14. Why were they being judged? God answers. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Malachi 2 verse 14. God says, I'm judging you because you're fooling around with multiple wives. You've broken the covenant with your marriage partner. Sociologists don't know that this verse is in the Bible, but there it is. Christians should know it's there. Fourthly, sexual union does not have spiritual or sacred implications. Oh, yeah? That's what we're taught. Sex is just for pleasure so long as you protect yourself against HIV and other STDs. Why not? Distribute birth control pills to girls in high school. They do that. Condoms to the boys. Abstinence before marriage is, <laughs> that's archaic, that's unrealistic. We can't expect young people to do that. Sexual experiences should not be hampered by unwanted pregnancies or the consequences of burdening a person's career. So abortion rather than procreation is an acceptable option when other birth control messages methods rather have failed or were not used. So abortion becomes a way of sexual ending of sexual pregnancies. Now brethren, there you have it. There are two philosophies on marriage which are as diametrically opposed to each other as could possibly be, 
One bases its beliefs and actions upon the underpinning foundation that God and God alone ordained marriage and intimacy within marriage as a covenant relation between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation and moral purity within that culture. The sociologist, the secularist view, teaches that marriage is the invention of men within society, so society can determine what constitutes marriage, who may marry, how many legal partners may constitute a marriage, what sexual expressions are permissible, when, where, with whom, and what we may do with unwanted babies conceived in the aftermath of those decisions. Society, society, society. Here then is the challenge. As a person of faith in God, which scenario will govern your life? My life. Will you obey the principles of God laid down in his word or will you opt for the world's distortions? Will you try to mix the two systems saying, well... I believe in marriage, that it's to be between one man and one woman, but I think it's nigh to impossible for young people to abstain from sex until marriage. Or again, I personally do not believe in abortion. I don't believe it's right, but I would not presume to impose my beliefs on another person. People have to decide for themselves. Yeah, well, tell that to the baby. That was aborted. Solomon, why Solomon puts it this way. He says righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14 verse 34. You know sin is sneaky. It's sneaky. Sin seeps in and it pollutes the heart of a nation. Sin also corrupts the piety of Christ's church through what we call toleration in the name of love. Well, the church of Corinth was tolerating in the name of love a man in the congregation who had committed incest with his stepmother And Paul says, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, don't even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. 
Expel the wicked man from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and following. Paul is saying, I'm not saying anything about how the world's living. They're a bunch of fornicators and adulterers and so on. And I can't do anything about that. But when we move into the church and we see those kind of things going on in the church, I got a lot to say about that. And if you don't deal with this man, this wicked man, he's going to be like yeast. What you allow in one person is going to happen in the next person and so on and so on. And pretty soon the church will become the world. And the world will be in the church. You won't be able to tell the difference. Oh, oh. And the judgment God brings upon the world will move from the world to on the church. You want that? The world would tell us, it's none of your business as a church what goes on behind closed doors. But God tells us that unchecked sexual sins are the yeast of malice and wickedness that will pollute the whole church. Brethren, it isn't love, it isn't love which turns a blind eye or a deaf ear to people's sin. People's souls are at stake. And more importantly, the integrity of the church and the glory of Christ and the glory and integrity of the gospel Now, thankfully, and I, this is wonderful, thankfully the church of Corinth opted to believe God's word on marriage and sexuality. See, what do you mean? The adulterer was thrown out of the church. That's what I mean. And, wonder of wonders, oh, if you obey God's word, wonder of wonders, in the course of time, this adulterer that was thrown out of the church, repentant of his sin, was restored to church membership. The discipline worked. Say, where do you see that? Well, you'll find it in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5 and following. The world could care less that a man was rescued from hell's destruction, but the church should care. We should care. As people of faith, we must believe God over the fine-sounding arguments and logic of the world devoid of faith. Are you living by faith in God's word on marriage and sexuality? It's so wonderful to see that the discipline of the church worked. The people rose to the occasion. They had to be prompted a little bit by Paul to do it, but they did do it. And the man repented, and he was restored back into the church fellowship, which is the way it should be. They could have left him keep on going on his way to hell. Yeah, that would have been really loving, right? No. Corinth did the right thing under the prompting of the Apostle Paul. So 
So the origin of marriage comes from God. Secondly, what about this partnership of marriage? Who is a suitable partner for marriage? Well, not a person of the same sex. You'll not find that in the scripture. But that being said, who of the opposite sex would constitute someone sanctioned by God to become your spouse? Free choice teaching in this country, even among evangelicals, I'm sad to say, has asserted that we have a right to choose anyone whom we wish to marry. The premise is, well, you know, people fall in love, love must win out. Yes, but as Christian woman or a Christian man, You've already committed to love God on the basis of what Jesus called the first and greatest command, which is, let me read it for you, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and Mark's account adds, and with all of your strength. Mark 13, verse 30. God first. And then he adds this statement in his gospel. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verse 37. Notice, God did not say, love God with all of your heart until and unless you meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Then say, share your love between God and the man or the woman of your dreams. God will understand. Now what he did say is, love God with all of your heart. Love God with your total soul. Love God in your thought life. Mark's edition. Love God with everything you got, uncompromisingly, unequivocally, with all of your might. And on the surface, it sounds like we believers cannot love anybody but God. Is there no love we may have for one another or another person? Well, of course there is. For are we not commanded by our God to love others? We are. It's not an exclusive thing. Let me read it for you. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another, said Jesus, John 13, verse 34. Or again, this is my command, love each other, John 15, verse 17. Jesus cannot be violating the first and greatest command, which is to love God, when he actually commands his disciples to love each other. There's no conflict here. Paul puts it this way, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. No contradiction, you see. Romans 13, verse 9. 
And Paul practiced his own admonition saying, Greet Ampelatus, whom I love in the Lord. Romans 16, verse 8. Or again, for this reason I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. You can love God and love others too. And three times in our text, Paul commands love within the marriage relationship. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 28. Again, each one of you should also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Verse 33. It's all through here. And Paul wrote to Titus saying, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Titus 2, verse 3 and 4. Oh, do you ever think that love could be taught? Well, yeah, if you don't think of love just as an emotion... So love, then, is the distinguishing characteristic of God's people. Jesus put it this way, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, verse 35. We know by all of this that Jesus' command to love with all that we are does not mean, indeed cannot mean, that we're not to love anyone else, least of all another person of the opposite sex. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone. You remember that statement? It wasn't good for him to be alone. It isn't good for most believers to be alone. So how do we reconcile the command of Jesus to love God first and love him with all of our strength and with all of our energies and these other commands by Christ and his apostles to love others? Well, the principle is this, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. There it is. We love Christ and we demonstrate that we believe Christ by obeying his commands concerning, among other things, partnerships in marriage. Okay, what does God have to say about marriage partners? Does he have anything to say in this area? Yes, God has spoken on all of life, and that means... He would not neglect something as vital as marriage. So think about it. 
In marriage, two people are coming together in a solemn covenant before God to pledge love to each other with God as their witness. They pledge to love each other in sickness and in health, in prosperity or poverty, in bad times as well as good times. This and more they vow before God and before human witnesses. They're instructed by God's word that the coming together will result in two fleshes, two bodies becoming one in intimacy so close, so close that dreams and aspirations and goals and money and resources are all melded together in such a way that individual egos give way to a united concern and love for the other to the point of personal sacrifice. When you say, I do, you're committing to a life of sacrificial love to one another. You're saying, I don't have to have my way all the time. I don't have to think selfishly. I can think of others. I can put you first. Despite the frivolity and the careless way the world enters into marriage, God's people see and believe the spiritual connection and responsibility associated with marriage. We do not think simply of a sexual mate, but we think of a soul mate. One who shares our faith in and love of God. Paul gives us the criteria for a marriage partner. I may read it for you. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Translation, don't partner with any unbeliever. That's in marriage, in business deals, in enterprises, or whatever. For, now here's the reason... I'm still reading Paul. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Good question. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what harmony is there between Christ and and Belial. Belial's an Old Testament name for Satan. The liar. Oh, and, and then one more what if. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? The answer to all of these questions is that they have nothing in common. For we are the temple of the living God, says Paul. As God has said, I will live within them and walk with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons, my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. See the family relationship? 
love God first, love God the most. And he goes on to say, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through the following chapter, chapter 7, verse 1. Now that's talking about marriage where you are a believer and you're looking to get married and you don't intentionally marry an unbeliever. That's what it's talking about. But I've known situations where you have people where both were unbelievers, had no thought of God, one gets saved becomes a believer, the other not, what do you do then? Ditch the unbeliever? No. That's an unusual situation. As simple as I can make it, Paul is saying that when you go looking for a marriage partner, as a believer, you have to consider the spiritual dimensions first and foremost. The men cannot say, oh, she's so beautiful. The woman cannot say, oh, he's a handsome dude. That's the world talking. That's your flesh talking. God is saying, if you have faith in me, if you love me, you will obey me in marriage as well as in all else. And my will for you is that that believing Mary, believing Marry in the faith. Marry another believer. person who loves God and his word as much as you do. Love that person who knows God through faith in Jesus like you do. That's the person you look for. A person who will partner with you in intimacy, yes, but also who will want those babies that come from that intimacy to be raised in the fear and admonition of Christ. Do you ever think about that? not just you. Paul, in speaking of a woman whose husband dies and leaves her a widow, says, let me read it for you, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. As long as he lives. Okay. But, now here comes the kudo, if her husband dies, I'm still reading scripture, She's free to marry anyone she wishes. Is that what it says? No. Here's what it says. She's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. If you're a Christian, you must marry another Christian. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. The reasoning behind this is that marriage is involved with far more issues than a vibrant love life. Marriage is a partnership in thinking, in solving problems, in setting goals for the future, in using methods which will help you reason through those goals. Marriage is about earning money and spending it. 
It is about philosophy on child rearing. It is about where to worship God and on what basis you're going to do that. It's about setting priorities because few have the means to do all they want to do in life. So you have to set priorities. Marriage is for better or for worse. You will need a partner willing to weather the storms of life with you, come what may, and not be willing to ditch you just because you're having a little bit of difficulty. Anything less than a spiritual partnership in soul will not do for the Christian. Young women here this morning, guard your affections. Mr. Dreamboat may be rotten to the keel and ready to sink you along with him in his own sea of selfishness and greed. I've seen that happen. Young man here this morning, guard your lusts. Mr. Playboy model of the year may be nothing less than the woman of Proverbs chapter 7 of whom Solomon warned his sons of her intent. What did he say? Well, he said to his adult sons now, Mr. Wiseman coming through. Here's what Mr. Wiseman told his adult sons. He speaks of the adulterous woman who says, I have performed my bed with... Perfume my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love until morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. And with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And all at once, he followed her like, like, like some ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darted into a snare. He little knows it will cost him his life. Proverbs 7, verse 17 and following. Did you think, you ever think the Bible was that practical? It's very practical. You say you believe in God. You say you love God. How then are you doing in your search for a life partner? Are you looking for someone in all the wrong places? Does that person you admire love God as you love him? Are they committed to Christ in faith? Is there evidence that he or she knows the Lord and is progressing in spiritual knowledge and holiness? Those are the things you should be looking for. Is the faith you say you have in God genuine or is it fake in your life? God first. So, well, that's easy to say. No, it's not easy to say. Don and I built our marriage on Christ. Grew up in the same church. Went to the same youth meetings. Came to know Christ. Committed our lives. 
to Christ. To the end. Brethren, faith values marriage. Firstly, by preserving and revering marriage. Divorce statistics show that one half of all marriages in America end in divorce. One half. Say, yeah, yeah, that's the world. Well, (laughs) even more shocking is that the stats are identical in the professing church. What, what, what? Yeah, the church has bought into the lie of the world. Hollywood is the mockery of marriage. Cohabitation has replaced marriage. I went online. Here's what I found. Here's the world's 25, 25, I'll read them fast, 25 criteria for divorce. <laughs> the Bible has two, two, two criteria, and I'll talk to, them, talk to you about that in a second. Here's the world's criteria for divorce. Lack of commitment, lack of communication between spouses, Infidelity, abandonment, alcohol addiction, substance abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, inability to manage or resolve conflict, personality differences or irreconcilable differences, haven't we heard that one, differences in personal and career goals, financial problems, different expectations about household tasks, different expectations about having or rearing children, Interference from parents or in-laws, lack of maturity, intellectual incompatibility, sexual incompatibility, insistence of sticking to traditional roles and not allowing room for personal growth. Oh, that's a good one. Falling out of love. Okay, I fell in love, but I can fall out of love. Religious conversions or religious beliefs. Cultural and lifestyle differences. Inability to deal with each other's petty idiosyncrasies mental instability or mental illness, criminal behavior or incarceration for crime, 25 total reasons from the world as to what would constitute a legitimate reason to end your marriage. I read that and I wonder why anyone would stay together. It's like they left no stone unturned. Okay, what's God's divorce criteria? Here it is. Number one, sexual infidelity. Let me read it to you from the lips of Jesus. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9. Now, you can't take that exception clause out of there and make it say something it doesn't say. Jesus is saying, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, that's when you commit adultery. The Pharisees had just asked, that's what this is about, the Pharisees had just asked Jesus this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife 
for any and every reason. Boy, talk about a loaded question. Matthew 19, verse 3. They're thinking like our modern world, right? The Pharisees. Oh, and by the way, Jesus answered, notice, he's not commanding a person to get a divorce because of infidelity. He's just permitting a person to make that choice if he or she so chooses. Many don't choose that. Infidelity and all. They choose to work things out. Oh, there's a novel thought. They choose to forgive the person. Oh, really? You mean I don't have to get a divorce if there's been infidelity? No. It's permissible, but not command. So that's one reason, biblical reason, possible for divorce. What's another? There is another. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. You know, oftentimes in marriage of two unbelievers, one will come to know the Lord as Savior and the other not. The newfound faith causes turmoil in the home because of the divided spiritual loyalties. And Paul says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband and he's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. But, here it is, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing wife, a believe, excuse me, a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 12 through 15. So you have two scenarios on ending a marriage for Christians. Adultery or abandonment. If your divorce doesn't fall under one of these two categories, then there's no biblical basis for it. But having said that, Divorce, which occurs before coming to know Christ, are forgiven along with all other sins. And even if your divorce should have been avoided because you knew better in the Lord, that sin is forgivable through repentance and faith. This is not an excuse for the divorce, but it is to say that there are no second-class believers in God's family. We all stand on the merit of Christ, not our performance record. What has Jesus done for me? He has forgiven me, including my divorce. For Christians that contemplate divorce, my injunction is that God hates divorce. Malachi 2, verse 16. I couldn't say it any better. God is saying it. God says, I hate divorce. 
because he, he calls it a breaking of faith with your marriage partner. So in light of that, we need to be marriage advocates at all costs. And when problems arise in marriage, we need to encourage people to seek counseling, biblical counseling, that's going to hold them responsible for the vows they took. Give biblical solutions for marital conflict that they might be experiencing. You probably don't know this about your pastor, but there was a time when Don and I were in a lot of conflict with one another. And we were contemplating divorce. This is when I was in PA. I called up a counselor from Westminster Seminary that I knew as part of my theological education. He was two and a half hours away. And Don and I went to Christian counseling once a week for many months. And God saved our marriage. He saved our marriage. I'm so thankful that that biblical counselor was there available for D and me. Not only saved my marriage, it saved my ministry. Can you would have imagined what would have happened had me as a minister of the gospel gotten a divorce? That would have been the end of my marriage and my ministry together. Like that. Satan wins. God loses. I lose. The church loses. But praise God he intervened. What I am saying is that faith values, faith values marriage. Firstly, by preserving it. And secondly, by promoting it. True, the Apostle Paul advocates that believers copy his single lifestyle. I've heard that so many times. Saying it is good for a man not to marry. I'm reading him. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 and 2. I say this as a condition, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has to have his own gift from God. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6 and 7. So you see what he's saying. He's saying,
I'm advocating that I'm advocating the single life. So I have to ask Paul, and I do ask him, Paul, why? <laughs> why would you advocate such a thing like that? Why would you downplay marriage when God promotes marriage? We've got it from the first couple on, Genesis on. Well, let me read Paul's words and he can answer for himself. Why, Paul, would you advocate no marriage? He says, because of the present crisis. I'm reading his words. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. I'm reading scripture. But if you do marry, uh, you have not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. I'm still reading scripture. And I want to spare you this. Wow. 1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 55, the year of the riot in Ephesus, wherein Paul barely escaped with his own life. You remember that? They took him outside and beat him. They thought they had killed him. They left him for dead. Emperor Claudius had spelled expelled all Jews from Rome in A.D. 49, according to Acts 18, verse 2. In 54, Claudius was poisoned by his own wife so that her son Nero could ascend the throne. What a wicked emperor Nero was. It was Nero in but seven more years who would order the beheading of Paul after his house arrest in Rome. Desperate times require desperate measures. And Paul is saying, and it's, when it's desperate times, it's wise not to marry. But in general, he would promote marriage. Most important, are you wedded to Christ as a believer? That's what's important. The church is called what? The bride. The bride of Christ. It's the bride for whom he died. Wow. In the book of Revelation... Describes what? The wedding supper of the Lamb celebrates in triumph his victory over death and hell and destruction and granting life to his bride forever. Wow, it's glorious to think about that. Married to Christ. The bridegroom that loves us so much 
that he gave himself for us to win us back from the claws of the evil one and to put our feet solidly upon the rock, himself being that rock. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Christ, for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the sanctity of marriage. We think about Father's Day. It's a great privilege to be a father. And it's a great honor to be known by the Heavenly Father and to be loved by you and redeemed by you, brought into your family, pulled away from the wicked world, from the claws of our arch enemy, Satan. Thank you, dear Christ, for a vibrant salvation, an active salvation, helps to live in obedience to you, out of love for you, and we'll praise you for all that you're doing in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal, number 279 in the Brown Hymnal. Let's stand. We'll sing. Great hymn, Faith of Our Fathers.
Thank you, Lord, for the truth of faithful fathers, our faithful Heavenly Father as well, who watches over us, his children. Help us to live for you. So we sung in this hymn, and even if it would be required of us to go to our grave for faith in our Father, rather than giving up and recanting our faith, Lord, give us that fortitude and love for you. And we'll praise you for what you do. Thank you for sacrificing your son. What a sacrifice. Yet you loved us so. And your son loved us so. That there was a partnership between you and your son. To save out of this wicked world a people for yourself. And we're so, so thankful that you have. If we're part of that family today, we thank you and praise you and ask that you might make yourself known to someone here today who's struggling to know, wanting to find the truth but hasn't yet come to it. Lord, may you reveal yourself in Jesus' name for your glory and their good. Amen. We are dismissed. Right here on my chair, I think. Hey, Steve. Good to see you, guy. Thank you. You too. Lydia, I like your dress. Boy, that, that's pretty. It is. It's so feminine. Asymmetrical hair. Uh, what yeah. M M yep. My niece Morgan. Um, she's older, but Morgan is a whole lot taller. And so every once in a while, Gretchen will send stuff up for. Oh, cool. They'll send stuff up for Naomi, but a lot of times it'll fit her because Morgan is so much.